Everyone see all right. At the newly opened Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin, artistic director Christian Markin is giving a guided tour. It's May 2012. So this is Smock Alley Theatre, the jewel of the crown. Back in the day, the stage would have been down at that end. There would have been seating risers coming up, a brick structure with uh, dressing rooms underneath the seats, uh, and it would have sat 800 people. Our story this hour crisscrosses the three and a half centuries in the life of this remarkable building, Smock Alley Theatre, which has graced the banks of the River Liffey since 1662 and remains the oldest surviving custom-built playhouse in these islands. So we begin in 17th century Dublin, where the Duke of Ormond returned from his exile in France with Charles I at the Restoration and brought with him immense power, French notions and a vision for Dublin. Margaret McGurk, head guide education officer at the Phoenix Park Visitor Centre, explains. He thought Dublin was rather dour. The city reflected this with the streets to quote himself, he said at the time, the streets were full of dead carcasses, this type of thing, and this reflected also in the people's clothing. He had come along from a flamboyant age within Paris. He had adapted and absolutely loved that city and wanted to be part of the whole feeling and the, the experience of Paris, and he really wanted to bring that back to Dublin and to London also. time there was a lot of um, development going on in Dublin and the Duke had a huge involvement and a huge interest in changing around the city of Dublin to what he wanted really to see was a, like a Baroque city as he had seen in Paris and something along the lines of maybe the Luxembourg Gardens or the Vauxhall Gardens in London. He wanted to turn the city around. Jarvis or Jervis um, in the city of Dublin had suggested that the lots that had been sold along the quays to build the fine houses, that they, the back gardens, should face the, the Liffey. And um, there would be streets then in front of that again, leading into the various streets like Cable Street, etc. But Ormond actually insisted that the, the houses were turned the other way around and that the, the facing of the houses, at the front of the houses, would face um, a lovely walkway and a road facing the, the walls of the Liffey. So there's a, a walkway on either side of the roadway all the way down the quays of Dublin. And, of course, this face Smock Alley along the quays also. The new town needed a new theatre and one John Ogilby took it upon himself to petition the king for one. Playwright and teacher Patrick Sutton, director of Smock Alley Theatre, reflects on his 17th century antecedent. He was the master of the revels. He'd been appointed the master of the revels and he went to visit King Charles II in England with the sole intention of getting permission to build a theatre royal in Dublin. And he came home, uh, not with his tail between his legs, he came home quite buoyed up. He was quite determined and quite full of himself that he was going to build a theatre and build a theatre he did. I mean, he, like we did, he went around to the citizens of Dublin and said, I would like you to help me uh, raise the 
the money to build a theatre. And, and the citizens of Dublin did that. Theatre life in 17th century Dublin restarted effectively in, in, in 1662 with the founding of the theatre in Smock Alley. Dr Christopher Morash is head of the English department at NUI Maynooth and author of A History of Irish Theatre 1601 to 2000. It was a theatre that was very much attached to the court in Dublin Castle. It was a place where people went to see and to be seen. And in the presence of plays that are dealing with things like loyalty, uh, freedom, justice, and here are the people who are making the laws, watching these plays, responding to them in one another's presence. Um, in a very, very dynamic sense of, you know, this was a, this was a real public forum in, in a time when the country had very few of such public forums. So here we have... Uh a kind of a magic box of um, a bits and pieces. An archaeological dig in the old theatre building got literally to the bottom of the forum and threw up some revealing treasures. Modern master of the revels, Patrick Sutton, jubilantly towers over me and his prized hoard of shiny things. Beautiful bits of pottery, some bones, little bits of pipes here. Look, little bits of pipes. And probably the most interesting thing we found was was just lying there. Just a slab, an old slab of wood right here. And uh, if you imagine that was maybe a part of the stage that, that they would have stood upon. They, uh, imagine that's a, just a piece, it's just an old, old piece of wood. But just imagine that was the, the stage on which David Garrick maybe performed Hamlet or Peg Woffington. I mean, the lovely thing about, about the artefacts that we found is they give the viewer an opportunity to recreate, to reimagine, and to just um, take themselves back in time to, to when this theatre was a working, living theatre and was absolutely at the heart of theatre in Dublin. After the Williamite Wars in the 1690s, the theatre has to reinvent itself. So it becomes a much, uh, much more open institution. So we, we know that there are descriptions of, you know, the broom men, for instance, in the gods, and of, you know, people who sweep the streets and go into the gods of the theatre. Servants, that people would send their servants along to hold a good seat for them and then send them upstairs to the gods. So you had much more of a social mix. You had, you know, the, the, you know, the servants and so on in the upper layer of the theatre. You had on the, the layer of boxes that was level with the stage, you had the aristocracy. Then you had the wannabe aristocrats above them. And then in the pits, you had the real theatre-goers, the, the students from Trinity, uh, soldiers, clergymen, the odd prostitute, and, you know, all gathered together in, in, in the pit of this theatre. One of the problems that they had in 17th century Dublin was it was very congested and of course you had no um, you had no waste disposal system um, and so you did end up you know where they would throw the, the sort of refuse in the cellar and stuff like that so that's why we get such good remains from the smack alley they weren't necessarily taking the stuff out and getting rid of anything that could be kind of spread around they, they just threw it onto the floor you know. That was Lindsay Simpson, the archaeologist with Margaret Gowan and Co Limited who was involved in the 2009 dig and we'll be hearing from her later. Other finds from the dig ended up in the National Museum on Kildare Street, and I joined the assistant keeper of Irish antiquities, Nesso O'Connor, there to look at some of them. Here we have several of the finds made during the excavations on the site of the Smock Alley Theatre in 2009. There are wine bottles, fragments of wine bottles, clay pipes, different types of pottery, and perhaps most intriguingly of all, we have this little clay, pipe clay, wig curler. 
and wigs were very fashionable in 17th and 18th century Dublin. And this little dumbbell-shaped object was used um, when heated hair and the hair was literally wound around this very simple little curler. Perhaps one of the actors may have used this, but equally the audience, uh, the fashionable Dublin theatre goers of the, of the time could have used something like this as well. Now, I see you have here um, an oyster shell and I suppose a lot of people do know that oysters would have been eaten in the, in the theatre like popcorn. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what we can see from the finds here from Smock Alley is that just about every activity, there was drinking, eating, um, smoking, as you can see from the clay pipes, but there were hundreds of oyster shells found. Yes, absolutely. So nowadays we complain about a mobile phone, but a serious audience member would have had a lot more to complain about. Absolutely. There were probably clouds of smoke and revellers making lots of noise. The poor cast probably had quite a difficult time to be heard some of the time. Quite so, according to Dr. Morash. In fact, he paints a picture of theatre going in the 17th and 18th centuries that would be unrecognisable today. And there are people you know, flirting with one another, there are people talking, there are people in the pit who think of themselves as the real critics are commenting on what's going on on the stage. And there's even the practice of gentlemen who really fancy themselves sitting on the stage. You could rent chair and actually sit on the stage so you have some poor actor up there you know trying to do king lear and there's some young buck sitting on a chair beside him you know waving to some lady down in the front row there's another account of, of, of a gentleman one of the boxes who had a particularly fetching set of hose and he sits up on the edge of his box and he's waving to a lady across the way loses his balance and falls into the pit it was an extraordinary kind of theater and very very different from the way we think of theater today Okay, okay, so let's go from uh, Hastings. Dear Matt, dear Madam, permit me to lecture the young gentleman a little. I'm certain I can persuade him Cut to... Cut now to April 2012. Well, I must retire. Come, Constance, my love. You see, Mr. Hastings, the wretchedness of my situation? Was ever poor woman so played with a dear, sweet, pretty, provoking, young, dutiful boy? You little bollocks, you. Okay, so in that last line, I like it. <laughs> because it's so well-spoken, yeah. and then just you little bollocks. So you're putting in, God, I know every inch of her. Christian Markin and the Smock Alley players formed for the first time since the 18th century are reading through the script of Oliver Goldsmith's She Stoops to Conquer for the theatre's long-awaited opening night in a few short weeks. They're busy cutting the text as well as improving on it. Okay, actually, lose the thing. There's a meek modesty about her. Cut, 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 cut. And it goes to bandbox. Band She's an all made up thing. Yeah. Can we say something other than bandbox being a little bop? Uh, bollocks. Your bollocks. We just had bollocks a minute before. More, more things, no? Me arse. Me arse. My arse. She's all a made up thing. Yeah, okay, that's good. This is mother's song. The original Smock Alley players didn't have as much say over the material as Markin explains on his tour of the building. But street level used to be down about nine feet, and there is a, through there, there's the remains of a little arch, and there was a hatch there. People would come along, and they'd knock on this little wooden door, and a fellow would slide out a scrap of paper and a bit of a lead, and people wrote down the play that they wanted to see that evening. It was, it was like pay-per-view, Netflix. Um, the actors would come in, and they taught up 
those 800,000 votes and they would do the play that the people wanted to see. So these actors would have probably 80 or 90 plays in their head, ready to go. Certainly the complete works of Shakespeare, ready to go. So they would come in, they'd taunt it up and they'd go, right, tonight it's Titus Andronicus. And they would pull out a couple of bits of scenery, get the costumes ready, freshen up the lines a little bit, and then they started lighting candles. I think one of the things about the Smock Alley Theatre that, that is, is significant, and probably not that widely known, is the first professional production of a play in English by a woman happened in Dublin on Smock, in Smock Alley stage. Catherine Phillips wrote a play called Pompeii, and it was staged on that stage in 1662, and that's the first time in the English language a play by a woman was staged by a professional company. Um, and it, it was it was, it, was a, it was a great big overblown tragedy full of purple prose and people dying, dying valiantly all over the place um, interspersed with dance numbers interestingly uh, it, it was a spectacle uh, and, and I think in some ways when we think about theatre at that time we have to remember it was it was almost like going to a nightclub. There was, you know, you, you would have big bursts of oratory and then you would have a dance of Egyptian slaves. Um, and all the time, the whole auditorium is lit and everybody's watching one another and dancing, and not dancing, but talking and flirting. And uh, it, 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 it is an event. Restoration refers to the period, the restoration of, of Charles II to the throne. He had just come back from France where the theatre was risque, um, where the writing was lively, where farce was um, terribly popular um, and women were on stage. It was pure entertainment. He wanted to bring that French idea um, to England and, and to Ireland. So the, the restoration period was a, um, an awful lot of, um, of innuendo in the writing, um, sort of body situations, and it was just uh, quite joyous. Arguably, the theatre's golden age was in the 18th century, and coincided with the dashing reign of manager Thomas Sheridan. Here's Dr. Morris again. Sheridan is a fascinating figure. He is really one of the fascinating figures of the 18th century in Ireland. He's, he's, he's a student in Trinity when he's asked to take over the management of what is, at that time, one of the most important theatres in the English-speaking world, and makes a great success of it. He does things like clears the young gentleman off the stage. He tries to reform the stage. And he writes pamphlets in which he compares the stage to a flourishing democracy, where he says you know, that the actor should have the same rights as, as every other person in the state. In other words, the right to, to really perform their art without being interfered with, without having oranges thrown at them and without having you know, abuse thrown at them from the pit. Because a lot of the people who are acting, if you like, the worst in the theatre in our terms, are the gentlemen. The aristocracy are only a couple of generations old as an aristocracy. They're not really confident of themselves. So anything they see as a right, they're going to defend. And that includes the right to behave really badly in the theatre. So at one point it results in a riot where a young gentleman from Galway, a man named Kelly, was badly drunk in the theatre, calling out abuse from the pit 
And Sheridan turns around to him, looks at him and says, I'm as good a gentleman as you are. And that was a declaration of war. That an actor to say he was a gentleman uh, in the same terms as somebody who had hereditary wealth. The, this man Kelly went backstage, tried to accost an actress. Um, Sheridan wasn't having any of this, hits Kelly over the head with a stick. And what results are several weeks of riots around the city centre of Dublin, where eventually the students in Trinity take Sheridan's side and bring Kelly into the front square in Trinity, force him to kneel and to apologise to Sheridan. I mean, that was the kind of importance that theatre had at the time. Um, Edmund Burke actually happened to be there in the theatre at the time. And, and the way he describes it later was, he says that Kelly threatened to do to the actress what her husband had done to her using the colloquial term. I always think a good riot is an indication of how well, how seriously people take theatre. If you care enough to riot, you really care about theatre. block their way across Goldsmith's play, Markin casts his mind back to another legendary figure who trod the boards, actress Peg Woffington. She came from an impoverished family. Her father apparently was a bricklayer and died leaving the family destitute. Peg was selling watercress door to door and at the age of 10 she was discovered by an Italian rope dancer and she quickly rose to fame primarily as a breeches actor um, meaning she was a cross-dresser she was quite popular at playing sea captains and that sort of a thing she moved off to London and she became big in Drury Lane after her early success in Dublin. She cohabitated with Garrick quite openly. Thomas Sheridan built a club next door to Smock Alley called the Beefsteak Club. And it was a place that actors could go and get uh, a hot meal and a pint, you know, before and after a show and, and be fed properly. It became very popular with the Four Courts, Parliament and the House of Lords and suddenly became the club to go to. Uh, and it was, it was a men's only club. Peg Woffington wanted to be a member and uh, she was told it was men only and she announced to the Beefsteak Club, she said, um, I know it's men only and I think I know most of the men in there and I also know your wives. Um, and she became the only female member of the Beefsteak Club and ultimately became the president of the Beefsteak Club. Her stage career ended on stage. She collapsed on stage 
She died in 1760. She never had great success as a dramatic or tragic actress because she had uh, what they said a strong character in her voice. I'm not sure if that's um, a strong Dublin accent that she couldn't get rid of, but um, she was never taken serious as a as, as a tragic actor, but as a comic actor, she was at the height of her game. might find your shirt in the girl section. Oh, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to uh, display my goods for all to see. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Smock Alley players are ransacking charity shops in the city centre for their costumes. They're fast-forwarding Goldsmith 1773, 200 years. The theme is 70s tech. I do dressmaking. Uh, um, I tailor, make clothes, and I'll probably be altering some of the costumes on this, uh, even though I'm acting in it as well. But I learned uh, to sew with a machine when I was 11 from an aunt of mine who used to make collars for the soldiers in the war. It's great to make something from nothing, you know. I'm looking for, uh, for the opening scene, I'm looking for Mrs. Hardcastle's in her kind of dressing gown, her, her frumpy kind of dressing gown look, and then she kind of dresses up and believes herself to be a person who is keeping up with fashions. Trying to, making an effort to be in fashion, but actually mixing it with the wrong colours. Just like, trying very hard to look well, to please the people from the city. And so I think maybe that, that might look good. <laughs> it's got a lot of big print and outrageous colours and whatever, so that might work. <laughs> I've actually found something that I quite like. <laughs> might come back later. <laughs> They're flare corduroys. They have patching at the bottom. We thought originally they were children's size, but they're actually like just a small adult size. But they're really stretchy, which is important because I have a habit of bursting pants in performances by being over excessive. Theatergoers in the 18th century undoubtedly witnessed many great spectacles but none of them could have been more alarming than a production of Shakespeare's King Henry VIII starring one of the big beasts of the hopefully sturdy stage. One of the actor managers here, Sheridan, uh, he was up at... Trinity College one afternoon, having tea with the provost of Trinity. And he brought him out into the quad of Trinity. And there, tied to a pillar or a sculpture, was an Indian elephant that had come back from a scientific expedition to the subcontinent. And they brought the Trinity said, we need an elephant, bring it back. And there'd never been an elephant, obviously, in Ireland. Um, and they just had it tied up, and they were giving it apples and hay, and it seemed to be happy. And no one had seen such a creature before. And Sheridan said, that's an extraordinary beast. Can I borrow it? And he took this elephant, and the promise said fine, and he walked it down Dame Street, around the front, and through the stage door. And in here were 800 people having a time. The curtains drawn back, and out comes a very terrified actor playing Henry VIII, 
riding on the back of an Indian elephant. It was, it only lasted one night because people are too terrified of this, of this creature. Numerous incidents were reported of the galleries collapsing, often with fatal consequences, and of a general state of dangerous disrepair. The theatre was demolished and rebuilt in the early 18th century. However, in 1787, shortly before the Act of Union with Britain and Dublin's slow eclipse, Smock Alley Theatre closed its doors. It languished for a few years as a whisky and flour storehouse, before being resurrected between 1811 and 1815 into the Church of St. Michael and John, which rose to notoriety in the troubled 19th century. Have I left you waiting in the cold? You look perished. <laughs> I'm not perished. I'm inside, but I, I arranged to meet Michael Casey at the fine old house where he was brought up on Essex Street West, formerly Smock Alley. The house is stuffed with antiques and curios and looks like a museum. Come upstairs and look at the way the house is actually laid out. For Casey and his family, however, the history is very much alive and present. The house itself is on the corner of Fishamble Street and what was in the 18th and 19th century Smock Alley. Most of it is built from the remaining sections of the old city wall. Um, it's probably... I would say, the oldest continuously occupied house from the time of being built. Certainly from the early 18th century, it was directly related to our family. The church itself was built after rooms, private rooms, had been used for saying mass during the penal times. Michael and both his father and uncle served on the altar there and he has strong memories of the parish priest, Father Mulderry. Father Mulderry, our parish priest, was a very austere, holy gentleman and he had been chaplain to the Dublin Fusiliers in the First World War and when I served his mass, he was, um, I believed he was quite decrepit, but of course this was only in the 1950s and he was far from decrepit. He was only in his 50s, 60s by then. He seemed to me to be very flamboyant and very exotic. He was a very tall man. Evidently, he had been ordained in May 1914, sometime around Pentecost, and had instantly joined the army. He walked very proudly and he was always immaculately turned out. He even smoked cigars, which seemed to me to be almost decadent. I mean, this was an appalling thing for, for a priest to do, and I think it was almost frowned upon <laughs> by, by pious elderly ladies in the congregation. But nonetheless, he walked around the place and he had a marvellous astrakhan collar on, a, on his black town coat. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go up this ladder here. OK. And we're going to be out on the roof in a second. The church was to prove significant in Irish history, as you'd expect from such a building. Frosting up. 
Oh, I... We have to walk up these slates together. And one frosty night, I climbed onto the roof of Smock Alley to look at the bell which still surveys the city from its lonely tower. The story goes is there was St. John's Church next door on Wood Quay, where the corporation building is now. And there was a medieval church there, St. John's, that had collapsed a century before. And in the rubble of that church was a medieval bronze bell. Apparently, they went across the pressures and dug up this bell, brought it over, put a wooden belfry in St. Michael's, and thus it became St. Michael's and John's. And they did a very bold thing in 1810, is they rang the bell. They rang the Angelus. And not significant except for the fact that a bell had not been rung in an Irish Catholic church for 300 years. Uh, some aldermen coming up the keys took grave offense to Catholics ringing bells and took an action against them. So the church went to the law society looking for help. And they said, well, you need a barrister. They said, well, we really can't afford one. They said, well, we'll give you a student. And they had a young hotshot student at the time named Daniel O'Connell, who um, once they saw him as the lead counsel in this case, they withdrew their case. And as you know, he went on to champion Catholic emancipation for the next uh, 20 years. The story also goes that in 1829, when emancipation came, Daniel O'Connell rang the bell until it cracked. The bell also rang in the Irish Constitution in the 20s, and apparently it cracked again, and it was recast in 1940. Um, and then it was the, the bell of Michael's and John's church until the church was deconsecrated in 1990. So the bell has been, has been silent for, for over 20 years. Of course, the Casey household is no stranger to the O'Connell story, and it seems he was no stranger to them. As prominent members of the Catholic community, albeit very discreet members of the Catholic community, Daniel O'Connell was brought to this house to be briefed. And he was brought up the main staircase and apparently tripped on one of the stairs. In his honour, we still have a lithograph of O'Connell and his bust on that particular landing. Can you see it? Yes, of course. Now, you can see that the staircase here is relatively narrow. And it's quite likely that with um, just candlelight on the stairs and possibly being ushered up by one of my own ancestors, and following along a cassocked priest, that he could easily have stumbled on this very corner. Here's his bust, and here's the lithograph, of which he was very proud, I believe, and um, he presented that, and there's the chair that he's sitting on, which was presented to the church, and it was on the main altar of the church. In my day, our parish priest used to sit on it during the sermons at Mass. The, the, the fact that this bell rang in Catholic emancipation, the fact that this bell rang in the Constitution, 
it's it's on par with the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, which is protected by 20 inches of bulletproof glass and 60 inches of marines around it. But here it's protected by, you know, a half an inch of pigeon droppings. Uh, it just... It needs to be rediscovered. This bell needs to find its voice again. And um, so it has become a, a personal mission of mine. The church's congregation declined, and in 1989, it was deconsecrated. The real loss, I think, to the community, not from a religious point of view, but from an artistic and social focal point, is the loss of a church. A church in Italy, a church in France, is very much part of the community that exists in an area. After all, we had works of art by international artists in it, and it was a centre of everything from political agitation led by Daniel O'Connell right through to the establishment of our own state. That's missing now. That's a gap. The gap, I think, is not, cannot be filled with theatre. It needs something far more traditional. The church actually provided that. I think it was 1989 was the last time that Mass was celebrated in the church and it was deconsecrated. And after that, it, it you know, vandals got into it and bits and pieces were stolen and there were people kind of living in there and it just it went downhill from there on in there was damage to the roof and there was water coming in um, and so it's just a gradual deterioration of of this lovely building um, I mean the only the only upshot side of it was that actually it, it was masking the smack alley theater but the church phase in its own right was uh, was a big loss you know that the fact that that the church was was lost to even discover the smack alley theater excited and all as we were it was a mixed feelings you know yeah. when we were doing it. But the biggest shock for me is what I think is my favorite line didn't get a, even a, huh was um diggery prepare the Datsun yeah. Did they were yeah. silent? Nothing. Absolutely. A dog barked in the distance. I heard that. Opening night is just around the corner, and the Smock Alley players are regrouping after their first preview. Last night was the preview. Uh, it's the first time we met an audience, if you like, and we had a very generous, very warm crowd in, uh, many of which were students of the Gaiety School of Acting. And uh, it, was, it was a very, very warm audience, and we felt it was a good show. We've been rehearsing this for about three weeks and the jokes that we were rolling around as a cast laughing at had become so stale uh, that we had just thought that they weren't funny um, anymore. In fact, I had a, a conversation with um, my cast member uh, that plays my, my love interest, uh, Kate Kennedy, who plays uh, Constance Neville, about cutting one of our pieces because we just found it it wasn't funny at all. No one's going to get it. And yet it got one of the biggest laughs of the night last night. So, yeah, a massive shock um, and surprise and, and bump, a bump up, you know, it really sent the, the, the play skyrocketing up to the level that it should be at because I think we were at the stage where we needed the audience. I'm Fran Halpin, scene painter, I suppose, mural artist, 
I'm almost finished. I'd say now I'll be done within the... I'm hoping to be done within the hour anyway. I have to be. Sorry, I have to work while I'm talking to you. <laughs> Are you under pressure? Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely under pressure today. I've been, like, getting up at six and coming in here before everybody gets here, do you know, the kind of way, you know. So I've been, yeah, flat out just getting it done, you know. But it has to be done right. There's no point in, you know, half hours it, you know, it has to be, you know. Pesky actors have been getting in your way. Yes, the, the lighting people, actually. <laughs> One, two, three, when it's packed, we're tied in tonight. I'm looking for a dolly So let's go to the top, and we're just going to go scene by scene, and it's, I'm just going to jump in and just tweak, 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 tweak. Okay, so it's kind of a few spanner in hand directing. No costumes. No costumes. I'm a juvenile product in the working class whose best friend floats at the bottom of a glass. Okay, so um, music is playing, music's playing, music fades out, house lights out. Get a little action in. Get about as oil as a diesel train. You're gonna set this dance alight. Cause Saturday night's a night I like. Saturday night's alright, alright, notes uh but uh, we're on lunch right now come back at half two and i'll give you the notes and then we'll do a three o'clock run right through after the church's deconsecration and an ill-fated though mercifully short-lived viking adventure center it seemed for some time that the building would fall into rack and ruin patrick sutton and christian markin had other ideas and embarked on a hair-raising and fundraising project that was to consume them for the next eight years. And uh, various people had various ideas, but, but, but there was no real um, determined notion that this was a theatre and it was going to be a theatre once again. And I remember, I remember we were walking back from the river, uh, Christian and myself, and uh, we said, wouldn't it be interesting to uh, go for this? And that was the beginning of it. We were renting the Black Box Studio from the Temple Bar Cultural Trust. And I was programming some plays in there uh, and directing um, a good few pieces in there. And when the opportunity came to sign a lease on the whole building, it was absolutely thrilling. We actually went on the roof of the theatre with a little small snipe of champagne um, the day we signed the lease and we rang the bell, and that was the beginning of the dream. Trying to figure out from the very early stages um, the narrative that I was going to take to uh, the people, the citizens of Dublin and, and beyond, that was quite important. And, and, and the decision that was made was to create the phrase uh, which I've stuck with uh, you know, for the last seven or eight years, which was to reinstate for Dublin, Ireland and the world Dublin's first theatre of 1662, Smock Alley Theatre. And when, once that became the mantra, um, it was repeated and repeated over and over again. Great piece of good fortune was on their side. 
While it has previously been suggested that the changes to the building in the construction of the old church were reversible, no one knew quite how much of the original structure was in place. Lindsay Simpson is an archaeologist who was using Smock Alley to store materials from a nearby dig when something caught her eye. Just one morning when we were going in and out that they, they had started to do a bit of construction work. They were uh, renovating the building. And uh, that involved just stripping off plaster and various other things. And uh, we just noticed uh, that when the light was coming in one of the windows that it was shining on um, one of the walls and you could see the, uh, the, remain, the, the sort of shadow or outline of a relieving arch in a wall that really didn't need a relieving arch. So um, straight away we started, I started to wonder about the wall and uh, whether or not it had the church, there were two phases, whether the church had been built, you know, de novo, brand new, or whether or not there was still part of the Smachali Theatre, because it was well known that the Smachali Theatre was on that site. So I just asked them to take a bit of plaster off and we, we found a bricked up window. And so they just literally took a kango hammer and, and knocked it off, I'm afraid that was quite a brutal. They had scaffolding up, which was fantastic, so we were able to draw the walls. That was the, the, the big thing. And so we started a project then on just trying to, to document it. I think we did it very, very quickly. I think it was three weeks we did the whole thing. And as we, we started off on the ground floor and we, as we went up and up the scaffolding, we were saying, oh, it's still the old wall, it's still the old wall, until eventually when we realised we were at the top that the entire building was the Smokhali Theatre as opposed to the church. They did very little when it came to the actual church construction. They had just completely refurbished it. They'd taken out the, the pit and the galleries. You know, they completely um, gutted it, but that the actual walls themselves were left intact. And these walls are the real deal. I mean, there's, uh, you can see some of these stones are quite regular cut. Uh, these grey stones, they would have been recycled from the city wall that was there. So they reused all the building material. So these stones are very interesting because they're flat on four sides and then they've got a concave side and a convex side and they lock together sort of like Stone Age Lego, you know, it's just the, to make it more defensible against cannon fire. I'd never raised money before. I mean, I'd, I'd raised money for bits and pieces here and there, but nothing as significant as this. So it was a fairly bleak start because the first donation we got was 20 euro, you know, and the millions we needed to raise, that, that was a long way short of that. The second day, I, I got 8 euro. So I was now 28 euro to the good. Uh, and realising that I'd opened my mouth, I'd spoken, I said I was going to do this thing, and, and we'd, we'd agreed that this was something that was going to be worth doing. And, and I'm looking down the barrel of a kind of a, you know, a, a situation where, where the money wasn't forthcoming. It was then that we kind of um, drew our horns in, as it were, and tried to figure out uh, a better way of approaching people. And I became a little bit more strategic. I drew up a list... Um, obviously, I, I got the Sunday Times rich list. I got the Irish Times rich list. There's a bunch of people who um, have made a lot of money uh, in this country and abroad, and those were people that I uh, targeted. 
I had no belief that they should um, give money to a, a, a theatre that was there. What I had an absolute a passionate belief in was that the story was worth, that the project was worth doing and that the story was worth telling. exciting to have to do it but scary I was also slightly nervous about Patrick's going to say Patrick went to America to go and fundraise it looked like Pompeii when he came back and uh, I'll never forget when he came, the day he came back I don't know whether Patrick remembers but I heard him coming somebody said Christian or somebody said oh Patrick's coming and I thought oh god Jesus, what are we going to do and we were hiding in the trench myself and my, my pal who works with me a lot Kevin Weldon we were hiding and Patrick came in and he clutched his hand and he went Jesus Christ this is and I was waiting for and he I thought, oh, I'm out of here. He said, this is amazing. And, you know, well, he used to explain it in front of it. But uh, and it was the first time a developer had ever said that about anything we'd found. It's the first time, first time anybody had been enthusiastic about anything we'd found before. Because I thought it was going to hit the roof. But uh, it had quite the reverse effect on him. He was very delighted with the whole thing. My own mother, um, she gave me a fiver. And um, she gave me a fiver, and I kind of was looking at the fiver, and I was kind of saying, well, grand, like, is, will there be more? And she said, oh, there certainly will be more. Of course, she subsequently got cancer and died, but I do have her fiver. I have the actual fiver um, in a glass jar. While phase one of Lindsay Simpson's excavations revealed the four walls of the theatre that the church builders had merely covered over, phase two was to go a lot further and yield the most important discovery. Even she hadn't realised just how far back the building went. I had underestimated the amount of, of remains. I had also thought, felt that the design team had kind of underestimated. I was trying to say to them at the design team meetings, listen guys, you know, we're going to really, really find an awful lot of stuff here. And they were kind of saying, oh, no, we'd be grand. And I was saying, no, we need machines, we need dump trucks, you need to get a licence, we need to get this stuff out. We'd be, you know, they had no idea, I don't think, about the amount of spoil that we were going to generate. Um, because I think they had this idea of little spoons and and so when we started talking, listen, this is going to be big, big, a big project. So we knew, I kind of knew I was nervous about it because it was, the logistics were very difficult because you can't, um, there's only one area that you could take a dumper truck out. So we had the machines and we had the fumes, we've got the road. You have to make sure that the machine can only dig it once. You can't roll back over the remains. So you have to get it right. Uh, it's a bit like the Rubik's Cube. You have to get the sequence right or you're done for. You dig yourself into a hole. When we started to strip the, the Essex Street West End, and where I thought, well, there might be too many walls here, and then I started to find, we started to find them everywhere, and I just said, oh my God, it was like, um, it literally was like Pompeii. Um, and uh, so I, I realised it was going to be huge, especially when we got the curving wall. And I suppose the most sort of defining moment was when we got the, we got the curving back wall of the auditorium, and we were trying to figure out where the walls were going, um, because you strip it with a machine, and then you go in and you dig it by hand. And when I realised that they were connected to the side walls, and there was a horseshoe shape, which is a, a, an early type of layout, and an important one, and I said, oh my God, this is actually horseshoe shaped. Because I'd been dealing with an author who had been asking me prior to having found all this, what did I think of Smock Alley? you know what was the layout and I said well it had a curving wall and he said oh, I don't know I don't know whether whether that's part of the original theatre when I saw when we saw it as as we started to be able to predict where the walls were coming up and then I realised that we, we were going to get the whole thing it was completely sealed they had demolished it down 
collapsed the rubble back in on top of itself and then built little walls to hold the church floor because there had been a crypt down there with burials and stuff in it as well, you know. So it was completely transformed from a burial. If, if, if you had gone down during the um, the church phase, you were in horrible crypts with sarcophagi and stuff in it, you know, and that was completely transformed into this. The, the full outline of the building was there. Uh, you could pick up, you could really visualise it. You could visualise what the Smakali Theatre looked like. With the very foundations now dating back to the 17th century, the historical importance of the building couldn't be exaggerated. However, clouds were gathering on Patrick Sutton's horizon. Suddenly we found ourselves on a roller coaster that was heading towards 2012. Now I thought, to be honest with you, I thought this was something that was going to take three or four years. That's how confident I was. Um, and a little too confident at times because suddenly I realised the closer we were getting towards the wheels falling off the truck called Ireland that things were getting harder and harder and indeed the, the, the final push to, to get the place built that was the hardest of it all because um, you know businesses were collapsing all over the place people's confidence was at an all time low and here was me still saying I wanted to reinstate for Dublin Ireland the World Dublin's first theatre 1662 Smog Alley Theatre The wheels as Sutton put it had indeed fallen off, and the effects of the crash reached him when he was least expecting it. I'm on a beach in Greece, having a holiday, actually, for the first holiday I'd had for, it was having for a long time, and uh, halfway through a two-week holiday, uh, I get a phone call to say that um, a junior bank uh, official uh, noticed that a T wasn't crossed or an I wasn't dotted quite correctly and decided to stop a, a cheque. Now, the effect and the impact of a cheque being stopped on the contractors who were, you know, operating in a very, very volatile environment, they were uncertain as to whether what the impact of this, this um, stopped cheque would be. And that was absolutely the low point because I'm in Greece and I'm, 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 I'm you know, I'm sitting in my shorts trying to figure out what the hell I'm going to do. I mean, listen, there were a million other smaller issues and smaller problems, but nothing as significant as the contractors telling me in 2011 that they were going to need to walk away. It's interesting, that as Greece was falling apart <laughs> and as Dublin was falling apart, my world was falling apart and Smock Alley was falling The whole damn world, the whole universe, my whole world was falling apart. And I'm sitting in Greece and I'm wondering... Well, how bad would it be to actually uh, make a phone call and say, I I'm out of Smock Alley? H how bad would it be um, to actually turn around and say, this isn't realisable? How bad would it be? And I was quite, quite determined that I wasn't going to drop or leave or give up on Smock Alley, not after all the time that we'd spent doing it. And also, the, the person who gave me 20 euro on the first day and the person who gave me the 8 euro and the person who gave me 100,000... This was money that I'd raised a long time ago and there was a massive sense of responsibility to these people. Um, it's interesting that, that when push came to actual shove, uh, certain people stepped up to the table, stepped up and said, listen, we can help you again and we will do. And, and that is what got us across the line. That is what got us to May 17 when Minister Dinehan um, called Mary Hannafin down from the audience and cut the tape that day and, and, uh, and the theatre opened. They have barefoot women mopping the stage. This is positively Georgian. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm just cleaning the stage for you tonight. There's only a chaise lounge and a, and a carpet so and a little like mat. So the black floor is like really important. 
This is the quietest I've ever heard the theatre. You can almost hear a pin drop. Yeah, it is the calm before the storm. This is uh, the grand opening. We've had two previews uh, that went fabulously. Uh, standing ovation last night. The programs have just arrived. You can smell the ink is fresh. And um, we're ready to go. We've just got two hours to sit around and sweat. Uh, end of Act 1. End of Act 1. Morris, if you can just tone down the... I, 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 grab on the ear. This is for you. I need to yeah. hear your little bollocks you because it was underneath the scream and the sound... And it was just a... Um, so you little bollocks you because that's the end of the act. And bang. So really fire that line can on I there. And he's going to be a little bit quiet there and... Taking off your makeup. I'm yeah. taking off my makeup. I'm sitting here in my underpants, very tight, small underpants, and my vest. <laughs> taking off my makeup. I'm taking off the lipstick, actually, that uh, Betsy just kissed me with. In fact, we had about several kisses on the stage. We got a little carried away with ourselves. So, Chris, we've moved on 350 years. I just sent an email to a colleague of mine saying, I'm in the smock alley watching She Stoops to Conquer. You know, that's not an email I could have sent any time in the last 300 years. I'm so relieved it's over. Opening nights uh, are, without a doubt, the, the, the worst night. Now we have tomorrow. The actors are relieved. They got through the night. They're having a couple of glasses of wine. Um, I'm going to be sending a few text messages uh, shortly to go home, go to bed, get some rest, because they've got five more shows until a day off. They need to be on form tomorrow. Well, it's really it's a dream come true. The very uh, first time that we found the theatre, we really wanted it to be like the phoenix of the flame rising up again, the smock alley. It was so, such a famous and integral part of Dublin. Great job done by Patrick Sutton. <laughs> I've never felt more positive, upbeat and forward-looking about, uh, about things. And I think in this time of uh, recessionary misery, it's probably one of the good things to be looking at is a theatre like this doing the kind of work that it's doing in these circumstances. So, yeah, I'm positive, I'm upbeat, and I'm very, very happy. You have come an awful long way uh, to support a friend of yours who's in the cast. What did you think? Uh, absolutely hopeless. Um, room for improvement, room for improvement. No, no, she was fantastic. It was really first-class performance. So you two likely lads are regular theatre-goers, then? Uh, no, no, we always had the acting roles at school where you didn't talk and stuff, the no, rocks no, no, and the no, scenery no, we're and stuff. Theatre-goers. We're not actors or theatre-goers. No, we're neither, really. Uh, we're sort of heathen. 
Why can't London keep its own fools at home, muses Hardcastle and Goldsmith's play. But I wonder where Smock Alley would be without them. I still get that rush going through the doors that I'm walking into a 17th century theatre space that is still a theatre space. For this project, I have sold my soul uh, so many times, and remortgaged and sold again. If you're driving down the quays in Dublin, you know, and there you see this marvellous gem of a 17th century theatre that hid there in plain sight for over 200 years before we realised it was there. Why London Cannot Keep Its Fools at Home was presented by Regan Hutchins. The programme was a Sounds Doable production for RTE Lyric FM.